This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Edgar Carrot read his story, Fly Already, from the May 15, 2017 issue of the magazine. The story was translated from the Hebrew by Sandra Silverstone. Carrot is the author most recently of the memoir, The Seven Good Years, which was published in 2015. His story collection, Suddenly a Knock on the Door, came out in 2012. Now here's Edgar Carrot. Flower ready. Pity sees him first. We're on our way to the park to play ball when he suddenly says, Daddy, look. His head is tilted back and he's squinting hard to see something far above me. And before I can even begin to imagine an alien spaceship or a piano about to fall on our heads, my gut tells me that something really bad is happening. But when I turn to see what Pity is looking at, all I notice is an ugly four-story building covered in plaster and dotted with air conditioners, as if it had some kind of skin disease. The sun is hanging directly above it, blinding me, and as I'm trying to get a better angle, I hear Pity say, He wants to fly! Now I can see a guy in a white button-down shirt standing on the roof railing looking down at me, and behind me, Pity whispers, Is he a superhero? Instead of answering him, I shout at the guy, Don't do it. The guy just stares at me. I shout again, Don't do it, please. Whatever took you up there must seem like something you'll never get over, but believe me, you will. If you jump now, you leave this world with that dead-end feeling. That will be your last memory of life. Not family, not love, only defeat. If you stay, I swear to you by everything I hold dear that your pain will start to fade. And in a few years, the only thing left of it will be a weird story you tell people over a beer. A story about how you once wanted to jump off a roof and some guy standing below shouted at you. What? The guy on the roof yells back at me, pointing at his ear. He probably can't hear me because of the noise coming from the road. Or maybe it isn't the noise because I heard his what perfectly well. Maybe it's just hard of hearing. Pity, who's hugging my thighs without being able to completely encircle them as if I were some kind of a giant baobab tree, yells at the guy. Do you have superpowers? But the guy points at his ear again, as if he were deaf, and shouts, I'm sick of it, enough. How much can I take? Pity shouts back at him, as if they were having the most ordinary conversation in the world. Come on, fly already. And I'm starting to feel that stress. The stress that comes with knowing that it's all on you. I have it a lot at work, with the family too, like what happened back then on the way to Lake Kinneret, when I tried to brake and the tires locked. The car started to skid along the road and I said to myself, either you fix this or it's all over. Driving to the Kinneret, I didn't fix it, and Liat, who was the only one not buckled in, died, and I was left alone with the kids. Pity was too, and barely knew how to speak, but Amit never stopped asking me, when is mommy coming back? When is mommy coming back? And I'm talking about after the funeral. He was eight then, an age when you're supposed to understand what it means to die. But he kept asking. Even without the constant annoying questions, I knew that everything was my fault, and I wanted to end it all, just like the guy on the roof. 
But here I am today, working without crutches, living with Simona, being a good dad. I want to tell the guy on the roof all this. I want to tell him that I know exactly how he feels and that if he doesn't flatten himself like a pizza on the sidewalk, it will pass. I know what I'm talking about because no one on this blue planet is as miserable as I was. He just has to get down from there and give himself a week, a month, even a year, if necessary. But how can you say all that to a half-deaf guy whose four stories above you? Meanwhile, Pity pulls on my hand and says, He's not going to fly today, Daddy. Let's go to the park before it gets dark. But I stay where I am and shout as loudly as I can. People die like flies all the time, even without killing themselves. Don't do it, please. Don't do it. The guy on the roof nods. It looks like he heard something this time and shouts at me. How did you know? How did you know she died? Someone always dies, I want to yell back. Always. If not her, then someone else. But that won't get him down from there. So instead I say, There's a kid here, and point at Pity. He doesn't need to see this. Pity yells, Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Come on, fly already, before it gets dark. It's December, and it really does get dark early. If the guy jumps, that will be on my conscience too. Irena, the psychologist at the clinic, will give me that after you I'm going home look of hers and say, you're not responsible for everyone. You have to get that into your head. And I'll nod because I know that the session will end in two minutes and she has to pick her daughter up from daycare. But it won't change anything because I'll have to carry that half-deaf guy on my back along with Liat and a mid-class eye. Wait there for me, I scream. I'm coming up to talk to you. I can't go on without her. I can't, he shouts back. Wait a minute, I yell and say to Pity, come on, sweetie, let's go up to the roof. Pity gives an adorable shake of his head, the way he always does right before he sticks the knife in and says, if he flies, we can see it better from here. He won't fly, I say, not today. Let's go up there just for a minute. Daddy has to tell the man something. But Pity persists. So yell from here. His arm slips out of my grasp and he throws himself down on the ground as he likes to do with Simona and me at the mall. Let's race to the roof, I say. If we get there without stopping, Pity and Daddy get ice cream as a prize. Ice cream now, Pity wails running around on the sidewalk. Ice cream now. I have no time for this crap. I pick him up. He screams and screams, but I ignore him and start running toward the door to the building. What happened to the kid? I hear the guy shout from the roof. I don't answer. Maybe his curiosity will keep him from jumping long enough for me to get up to the roof. Pity is heavy. It's hard to climb all those stairs when you're holding a five-and-a-half-year-old kid in your arms, especially one who doesn't want to go up the stairs. By the third floor, I'm completely out of breath. A fat, red-headed woman who must have heard Pity's screams opens her door a crack and asks who I'm looking for. But I ignore her and keep climbing. Even if I wanted to say something to her, I don't have enough air in my lungs. No one lives upstairs, she calls after me. It's just the roof. When she says roof, her shrill voice breaks and Pity yells back at her in a tear-filled tone. I scream now. 
now. I don't have a free hand to push open the peeling doors that should lead outside. My arms are full of pity, who doesn't stop flailing, so I kick it as hard as I can. The roof is empty. The guy who was on the railing a minute ago isn't there anymore. He didn't wait for us, didn't wait to see why the kid was screaming. He flew, pity subs. He flew, and because of you, we didn't see anything. I start walking toward the railing. Maybe he changed his mind and went back inside, I tried to tell myself, but I don't believe it. I know he's down there, his body sprawled at an unnatural angle on the sidewalk. I know it, and I have a kid in my arms who absolutely shouldn't see that, because it would traumatize him for the rest of his life, and he's already been through enough. But my legs take me toward the edge of the roof. It's like scratching a wound like ordering another shot of shivas when you know you've had too much to drink, like driving a car when you know you're tired, so tired. Now that we're almost at the railing, we start to feel the height. Pity stops crying, and I can hear both of us panting and an ambulance siren in the distance. It seems to be asking me, why? Why do you need to see it? You think it will change anything? Make anyone feel better? Suddenly, the redhead's high-pitched voice commands me from behind. Put him down. I turn around, not really understanding what she wants. Put me down, Pity shouts too. It always gets him going when a stranger butts in. He's just a kid, the redhead is saying, but her voice is suddenly soft. She's on the verge of tears. The sounds of the siren is getting closer, and the redhead starts walking toward me. I know you're suffering, she says. I know that everything is so hard. I know, believe me. There's so much pain in her voice that even pity stops flailing and stares at her, mesmerized. Look at me, she whispers. Fat, alone. I had a child once, too. You know what it is to lose a child? Do you have any idea what you're about to do? Still in my arms, pity hugs me tight. Look at what a sweet child he is, she says already beside us, her thick hand stroking Pity's hair. There was a man here, Pity says, fixing his huge green eyes, the Ats eyes, on her. There was a man here, but now he flew away, and because of Daddy we didn't get to see him. The siren stops right below us, and I take another step toward the railing, but the redhead sweaty hand grabs my arm. Don't do it, she says. Please, don't do it. Pity has a scoop of vanilla in a plastic cup. I order pistachio and chocolate chip in a cone. The redhead asks for a chocolate milkshake. All the tables in the ice cream parlor are filthy, so I clean one for us. Pity insists on tasting the milkshake, and she lets him. She's called Liatu. It's a common name. She doesn't know about my Liat about the accident. She doesn't know anything about us, and I don't know anything about her, except that she lost a kid. When we left the building, medics were putting the guy's body into the ambulance. Luckily, it was covered with a white sheet, one less image of a corpse in my mind. The ice cream is too sweet for me, but Pity and the redhead look happy. With his cup in one hand, he reaches out for her milkshake with the other. I don't know why he always does that. 
After all, he's still eating his own ice cream. Why does he need more? I open my mouth to say something to him, but the redhead signals that it's okay and gives him her almost empty cup. Her child is dead. My wife is dead. The guy on the roof is dead. He's so cute, she whispers, as pity strains to suck up the last drop of milkshake in the paper cup. He really is cute. That was Edgar Carrot reading his story, Fly Already. He's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2012. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps, available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Rachel Kushner reads The Black Lights by Tom Jones. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. The weekly audio edition of The New Yorker is available on iTunes or audible.com. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice on iTunes. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>